This is an ABC podcast. This is Baby Talk Podcast with Penny Johnston. Who wants to talk about money right now? The one topic designed to make you feel worse than almost anything else. And according to Relationships Australia, it's the thing we're most likely to be fighting about at home. But unfortunately, we do need to be talking about money. If nothing else, the COVID-19 situation has made it clear that we live in a fragile world where almost anything could potentially happen to derail our current financial security. And with the special funding packages from the government that have been helping so many of us about to come to an end, what can you do to shore up your current financial situation and make sure that your money doesn't take more of a hit than it needs to? Those stimulus payments are going to stop. And then what? I think it's really important for families to be having these conversations now around money and to realise this is not business as usual. This is not finances and money as usual, we actually need to make a plan. Melissa Brown is a woman with some serious financial credentials. She's a regular financial columnist and someone who's talked saving and investing for years. She believes that couples particularly need to take a closer look at how they relate to money to find out how they can make their best plans for the future. She's got some really useful strategies for helping you get through this current crisis and anything else that might be thrown at your family anytime soon. But let's start at the money beginning. For most couples, the first financial crisis you're likely to experience is going to be when you find out you're going to have a baby and suddenly you have to start planning for the future, whether you want to or not. So Melissa, before we get into planning for that baby, how exactly do you introduce yourself and your financial credentials? I wear lots of hats. So I generally tell people now that I'm a financial educator, a little bit of a financial therapist, an author and an entrepreneur. And usually that piques people's interest and they just sort of choose which one they want to ask questions about. Well, at least it makes you an interesting dinner party guest. <laughs> and I don't know what... my first job, which was an accountant, where they would quietly turn and talk to the person next to them. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about money, which is kind of a weird thing to be talking about in a podcast that's all about parenting and babies and small children. But for a lot of us, we can perhaps kind of coast along not worrying too much about money, but suddenly being required to care for a baby with a lessened income is a point of crisis. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. And certainly Relationships Australia research shows that certainly for couples and families, money is the number one thing they fight about and they fight about it at least twice a month. So for me, removing that stress, removing that stressor when you already have that incredible new potentially stressful situation of introducing a baby and a child into that relationship, if you can remove some of that stress, oh, that would just be, I'm sure most people would think that was wonderful. I agree that I'm one of those people that find it really, really, really difficult to talk about money. You are not alone. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't I don't think don't think it was anything to do with politeness, but I just I just find it really stressful and such a catalyst for arguments. Yeah. And look, I think there's so much judgment with money and there's so much shame and there's so much fear. Like there's so much emotion tied up with it. 
And I think if we're, if we can approach money in a curious way, instead of a judgmental or shameful way, or just approach it in a way where trying to understand the other person and why they're behaving the way that they are, then that can be a better way to do it. Because many of us have grown up with money stories that, you know, you're not supposed to talk about money and that it's impolite or that it's rude or that it's not proper dinner conversation. Or some of us just don't feel like we're at the age and stage that we should be. So there's all these awkward and uncomfortable reasons that prevent us from talking about money. We all potentially experience what it's like when we don't talk about money properly, but how do you suggest we get started? So I'm a real fan of instead of, I mean, obviously we're not going to have talk about money and on a first date, but <laughs> it's certainly if we're having if we're having families or if we're talking families or if we have kids, we really should have a language around money. So I'm a fan of starting curiously. So what you might do is seek to understand the other person's behavior through asking about things like their money story. And by money story, it's so what money story did your parents teach you growing up? Or what money story did you learn from culturally or from your community or from your peers and compare it to your experience and to ask, is that serving or sabotaging you? And is are they conflicting money stories? And if they are, then how can we bring those together? And for me, starting there is a beautiful way of you're doing it without judgment, you're doing it curiously, and you actually are seeking to understand the other person's point of view and why they're behaving the way they are. And what I know from when couples do this is that suddenly it makes sense why their partner is behaving the way they are with money. And then they can start to do something positive about that. Because it can be just so stressful. And for all the couples that have changed circumstances with working, in a sense, we're in a bit of a holding pattern while the government is helping everybody out a little bit. But now is the time to be talking before things even start to get potentially worse for people. Absolutely. I just recall something today where... I said that it was less than 90 days until the stimulus payments end. And that's really concerning for me, for families, because what we don't want, and I know a lot of people when the pandemic hit and the borders were closed and the government sent businesses into hibernation, a lot of people don't have a buffer of three months worth of expenses. They barely have two weeks worth of savings. So there was that moment of panic where families just went, oh, God, how are we going to survive? And of course, when the stimulus payments arrived, people started to feel more comfortable because they saw a light at the end of the tunnel. And for a lot of people, mortgage payments have been paused and rent has been paused and people have been grabbing money out of super. But I have a real fear that we're going to get to October and those stimulus payments are going to stop. And then what? I think it's really important for families to be having these conversations now around money and to realise this is not business as usual. This is not finances and money as usual. We actually need to make a plan so that if there is a, a second problem when the stimulus payments run out, if there is another moment where the economy does dip further into a recession, we actually feel like we have options. We feel like we have choice. 
because we've built those buffers, because we've reduced our expenses, because we have savings. Yes, it's uncomfortable to talk about money and we may just wish it could just be, oh, why can't I just have business as usual? But we really need to understand that we can't at the moment. And I just can't encourage families enough to really look at their spending and to really create those buffers and um, savings pools. How do you even start? We know that we've got to reduce our spending, but we're all working at home and the head is going flat out. There's, yeah. not, there's not much fun in life at the moment, so we are taking advantage of a bit of takeaway. What do we need to do to try and reduce our spending? So I really like a two-pronged approach. So one is we want to reduce our spending. So it might be, so we might sit down with a coffee on the weekend, put the kids in front of the screens just for a bit of... <laughs> right? We need to concentrate time and spend an hour just going back through three to six months worth of bank statements and pull, swap or cancel expenses that we just don't need at the moment. So it might be things that you've left running that actually you're working from home still and you don't need to be paying for that anymore. Or they might be nice to haves, but at the moment we can't afford them. Or they might be the kids used to do four after school activities a week, whereas we actually need to reduce that to one. So it's about swapping, pausing and reducing your expenses to start. But then I would go to the other side and say, right, do we have a buffer? Do we have those savings? How can we get that in the next 90 days or six months and start automating those savings to another bank account? So it just happens, kind of like your tax being taken out or your superannuation. And then because that's been automated and because you've reduced your expenses, that should mean that your everyday monies that are coming in should be able to cover what's left. And if they're not, if they can't, then it would be, I'm a real fan of splitting up your bank accounts to bills, to savings, to buffer and to everyday. And to have those automations going so that you're just eating out of the one bank account. And if that starts to go down and, and there's, you don't have much left at the end of the week, it's okay, well, look, you go back to how you were at uni or when you first left home, right? It's rice and beans tonight, kids, <laughs> um, or it's sausages tonight. You know, we need to find other ways to have fun rather than just spending. And I think we've kind of got this societal pressure that relaxing or, or enjoying ourselves equals spending money. And I think we just need to break that. We need to break it in ourselves, but we also need to break that in our kids. Because I don't know about you, but when I was younger, so much of what we did was free. And it's about going back and finding that creativity that we used to have and having our kids find that too. A lot of times when you speak to people about budgeting, the biggest savings is going through those regular expenses and asking for discounts on things like power yes, and absolutely, yeah, it's doing insurance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially at the moment, there are so many providers that are willing to give you discounts. Even private health insurance companies were willing to pause um, your payments for three months. Um, there are so many um, ways that you can reduce. And it's just us. If I was in the hospitality industry, which is one of the most extreme industries affected, I would have no shame in going to every provider I dealt with and saying, so <laughs> how can you help me at the moment? What can you offer? Because it's all about you getting through this. 
and getting through it without debt and without stress, with as little financial stress as we can. And I'm going to share a little journalist hint on this one. You're on the phone. The worst thing that can happen is they'll say no. No one's going to see you blushing. Mm-hmm. And as as tough as it is, you know, if it saves you a hundred bucks that you get to spend on some fabulous takeaway, it might just be worth it. Although, um, sorry, well, I'm supposed to save that hundred dollars. That oops. you put into your buffer account, exactly. <laughs> sorry, Melissa. <laughs> Obviously, I'm a bad, a bad, bad budgeter, which which is kind yeah. of. <laughs> Your book, which has a very catchy title, <laughs> is that budget budgets don't work, and you've got a lot of analogies between budgeting and dieting, which must be the the two industries that are most destined to fail and make you feel completely awful about yourself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think women particularly. We know diets don't work. They're short term, they're too restrictive. And often at the end, you put all the weight back on that you did when you were on the diet. Um, And I say it's the same with money. So budgets are often too restrictive. They're they're way too all encompassing. And by the time we finished, often what we do is we grab those savings and just splurge them instead of putting them, like they're not something we can do long-term. So what I'm a fan of instead is finding what's inherent to you, figuring out how your, what your makeup is, and then creating a system off the back of that. One of the other things that you point out in the book is how stress affects our ability to to stick to a plan and how stress can really affect our thinking and ability to plan. So so we shouldn't be sort of too hard on ourselves. Can you explain how how you came to those conclusions? Yeah, so when I'd be working with people financially, and I know this in my own life as well, the 90% of the time when we don't have that stress, we can actually do pretty well most of us, and even financially. But it's the 10% where it might be that we've dealt with a customer or our child's had a tantrum or something has happened, or maybe it's the big stuff too, maybe it's sickness or ill health. And it's those 10% of things that can actually are the thing that can undo us financially and it also if we think about all of our life it actually has the stress has the ability to undo all of the good things that we're trying to do whether it's exercise eating well um, relationships so it's no surprise that it affects us financially as well so what I'm a real fan of and I talk about this in my book where this is part of getting to know yourself is to keep a stress log and gosh, I mean, I don't know about a major stress event, but global pandemic, I think a stress log's kind of... Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's all red. It's all red writing from here. <laughs> but it's figuring out how you behave when you're stressed. So it might be that you need, so you might find yourself, if you're stressed, you might pick up your phone and click to buy. Or if you're stressed, you might pick up a glass of wine and then be more susceptible to spending that it's figuring out how you behave financially when you're stressed. For some people, they are paralysed and all these great financial decisions they might have made around buying assets or saving, they're simply not able to do because they're absolutely paralysed by their stress and they need to hoard to feel better. So for me, it's, it's keeping a stress log and working out during a stressor event, how do I behave financially 
and recognizing that so that you can choose what you would do next time. And for me, I have all sorts of non-financial things that I do that I can alleviate stress, whether it's box breathing or doing some exercise or going for a walk, or even I had someone tell me recently, normally they would go and buy something, whereas they just went and bought an $8 bunch of flowers and put it on their desk. And that $8 just removed that stressor. And yet they still bought something and it was something pretty that they could enjoy. So they swapped that behavior that might miss, that might have sabotaged their finances in the past. But if we're not aware of it, and if we're not aware of how we behave, that's where we revert back to budget because we're not recognizing our financial behavior. A friend told me once that the sort of physiological response that we can sometimes get to buying something online is almost like taking a bit of a hit of a drug. It hits the same section in your brain. So Absolutely. And I talk about this in the book that in the nature, our brain responds to buying. And there's actually from some of us, uh, parts of our brain light up with a pleasure response. <laughs> so what it is, it's about getting that dopamine hit from things other than a purchase. And it's recognizing that we actually have a neurological reaction to buying. But interestingly as well, as a result of the pandemic, we're moving to not using cash. So we're using to buy now, pay later site and credit instead of cash because we're worried about getting sick and catching COVID from notes and coins. And when we use cash, our brain actually registers that there's pain caused. So parts of your brain light up to do with regret and pain. Yet those same areas in our brain don't don't light up when we use credit and buy now pay later. So it's actually recognizing that too and saying, all right, how can I combat that if it's make if the pandemic is actually causing making it easier for me for me to spend and mean that I actually don't feel regret and I don't feel pain when I spend. And that could be as simple as putting a pinging alert on your phone from your bank when you make a credit card transaction so that that ping is that audible thing that annoys you when your brain lights up or any sort of thing that you could create and artificially create to activate those senses in the brain. So wow. we're, we're a strange, we're a strange uh, makeup of humans. I find it fascinating how changing, changing how we pay actually means that we can spend more and substantially more. So research has shown we spend 100% more using credit than cash because our pain sections aren't activated. How incredible. <laughs> Melissa, you've talked about money personalities. Do people all fall into one of a few different types of categories? Yeah, absolutely. So in the book, I talk about your financial phenotype, which is how you were financially made up. So that's your money story and your money environment but also your money type. And your money type is your money personality, if you like. And in the same way that I'm an introvert and uh, my husband calls me raging introvert. (laughs) So I quite like this no party COVID. I can't force myself, I can force myself to be extroverted for a time, but I'm going to be so energetically depleted as a result of doing that. And that just makes sense to me. When it comes to money types, the fact that people can fall into different buckets also makes sense to me because we all inherently behave a particular way with money. And instead of spenders and savers, which is how the financial advice world kind of want us to bucket us because it's easy, I think there's four different money types. There's the worker, and this is all based on research, it's not just I think. 
the worker, the creator, the discerner and the relator. And going back to our conversation about doing money well in a relationship, what I see is often it's when we do money badly, it's often the result of a clashing money story or a clashing money type. So for example, a creator and a worker could be in a partnership together. The creator just wants to talk about manifesting and mantras and, you know, let almost a get rich type quick schemes, or they're, they're very willing to bet the house, if you like. Whereas a worker would be head down, bum up, what on earth are you talking about with manifesting? I don't even understand the word. We just need to pay off the house as quickly as possible and be super safe and pragmatic. And both of those money types could be so extraordinarily frustrated with each other. With that, and both of them could think that they are doing money wrong when they're not. They're just doing money in a way that makes sense to them and their inherent money type. And for me, once you understand one of your four money types, and most of us will be hybrids of those money types, then we can actually do money better together, use the strengths of those money types and set up really great money habits that are actually right for us rather than popping us into a box and saying, do those seven things that everyone else in the world's doing, <laughs> which just doesn't make sense. I kind of, I talk in the book to that being very similar me going to an office building and saying, right, everyone in here, same portions, same foods, same everything, same quantities, deal with it. Whereas we're going to have very different physiologies and vegans and vegetarians and intolerances and food makeups. Why would it be any different with our finances? Do you still think it's important that we have financial goals that are something other than just surviving until oh this is gosh. all over? Absolutely. I'm a real fan of designing the life you love. If I had my mantra for my life, that's what it is. And do you know what? You can't, that doesn't mean sunshines and rainbows every day. So we're, we are in a global pandemic at the moment. I absolutely wouldn't freaking design this. <laughs> but that's not to say that within it, you can't still make progress towards your goals. Or you can't say, you know what, they're paused for 12 months while I just make sure that I thrive in this new normal and, and come out of it as best I can without having taken a step backwards. And I think it's really important for me when I'm working with people, we want to enjoy today. If you've got a newborn, if you've got a young family, you don't want to miss out on that time. But you also want to make sure that your future self and your future family isn't put at risk because of how you're behaving today. And for me, that's where the tension in goals are. And a good goal session, I think, is always around making sure that today is looked after. You're not going to have, you can't have everything, but making sure that there are there is pockets of joy and that we are, there are things that we're enjoying today, but also that our future self is being looked after too. That enjoyment might be as much as really enjoying that daily cup of coffee in absolute peace and quiet. And that's an absolute essential to me. <laughs> but families, it's just making sure they have that buffer because that was just the research and the data coming out of COVID was people grabbing that $10,000 super and 63% spent it on discretionary spending to enjoy now because they didn't have buffers. And I'm really concerned that come the end of stimulus, families are going to find themselves in a really tough position 
because they've put their head in the sand during this time. I mean, it's an understandable reflex. I mean, I have to say I've done my own bit of, you know, (laughs) sand gazing. Definitely. And I think we can, we absolutely can give ourselves that moment, but we're now three months into this pandemic, which is extraordinary to say. We've had our head in the sand moment and we now need to pull it out and go, right, had the moment, had the pity party, had whatever, you know, had that thing where we're like, we're supposed to be in Fiji this year or whatever that thing is that you needed to have your moment for. But now for the next 90 days, it's got to be about building the buffers, reducing the spending and making sure that your family is set up financially for doesn't matter what happens globally with COVID, doesn't matter what happens in Australia or in your suburb or in your industry, you have choice and you're financially protected because you've done the work now. So it's not, I know buffers and things like that aren't sexy to a family, but I reckon that if they had a three-month buffer back in March, they'd think that was the sexiest thing that they had. <laughs> they, they would think that was their one their one gratefulness. So how do you work out what your buffer needs to be, Mel? So buffer should be at least three months' worth of essential spending. Uh, your utilities, your rental, your mortgage, school fees, internet, phone, groceries. So that all, all that essential spending, so not clothes and shoes and after-school activities and all that sort of stuff but just making sure you have the essentials covered. You talk about people having a money story that they inherit from their parents. How do parents make sure that they're giving their own children a good money story? I love that. So I think that we are really conscious, and I've talked to a lot of women who are really conscious of how, how they speak about food in front of their kids, and I don't want to pass on the message that food is good or bad. And especially with their weight, they're really conscious that any story around weight or food that they inherited, they don't want to pass on to their kids. And I think we need to do the same with money because what we want to do is make sure that our children have really great money stories. And that involves making sure we talk to them about money. You know, my dad retired at 53, did money really well, but didn't talk to us about it. So My sister, who is a social worker, she doesn't potentially have the same financial literacy as I would, who's in the finance profession, despite us having a dad who really understood money and did it really well himself. And we kind of have probably fairly unhelpful money stories because money wasn't something talked about in our household. If I could exhort parents to do anything, it would be having a chat about money, whether it's as simple as, What are you going to spend your pocket money on all the way through to explaining that? Okay, so the money in in our house at the moment has gone down a little bit because of COVID. So we all just need to pick one thing that we are going to have to do without over the coming weeks so that we can make sure that as a family, we're doing really financially well. And I think by teaching kids these financial lessons, Kids are making up their own money story without you talking about it. They're absolutely watching you and making up their money story. So by you talking to them about it and listening to them and having them tell you what they think about what's going on financially, you can then start to shape their money story. And that can be an extraordinary gift for your child because just because you think money is something that's awkward and icky and uncomfortable to talk about, 
doesn't need to be the legacy that your child has. Melissa Brown is the author of a new book called Budgets Don't Work, but this does a guide to understanding your financial type. Now, I hope you found this interview useful with some good hints for potentially planning for the next few weeks. And coming up next on Baby Talk, we are going to be talking to a representative from the government about what is coming next with the childcare, with the bonus payments, with the JobKeeper plans. If you have a question about government finance, I would encourage you to head over to the Baby Talk Facebook page and send me a message with your question, whether it's the 750 family bonus payment, what might happen with free childcare and how you register to keep childcare going or anything along those lines. These are really tricky questions, ones that even I'm finding it hard to navigate the situation for our family circumstances. But this is a great opportunity to get your question answered. So head to the Baby Talk Facebook page. I'll put a post in there. And also on the Baby Talk Facebook group, if you'd like to join, this would be a really good place to do that. Now, Baby Talk, if you've just discovered us, is a weekly podcast. Last week, we spoke to the founder of the wonderful Australian Storybox Library, which is a website with Australian picture books read to your children on video. It really is such a lovely idea. And if your local library is a subscriber, you can watch these stories with your children for free. That's just one of the podcasts you'll find on Baby Talk. You can find us online by searching Baby Talk. We're on the ABC website. We are also on Facebook under Baby Talk with Penny and Instagram. Now, if you're listening on iTunes or on the ABC Listen app, you can share this podcast with somebody you think might need to hear it. I'm Penny Johnston, and I will see you next time on Baby Talk. ABC Baby Talk is a weekly podcast on ABC Digital Radio, wherever you get your podcasts and on the ABC Listen app. Like us on Facebook to find out as soon as a new episode is ready. Just search for ABC Baby Talk. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.